Susan Eastman is the first of our speakers this morning. Susan is the Associate Research Professor of New Testament at Duke Div uh, Divinity School, uh, where she, in fact, earned her PhD in New Testament herself there. Um, Susan's well known to many of you uh, as a scholar of Paul in particular. Um, several fine works recovering Paul's mother tongue, language, and theology in Galatians, uh, and a recent book which we uh, devoted a whole uh, term's worth of joint seminar to in, in Aberdeen not long since, Paul and the Person, uh, Reframing Paul's Anthropology, really, really interesting study. Um, just last year, several folks in the room uh, will know because they were contributors. We were able to um, uh, offer papers uh, in a festship that, that was as assembled in her, her honor called Practicing with Paul, Reflections on Paul and the Practice of Ministry. Very interesting study or collection of studies uh, in Susan's honor. Her paper this morning, um, The Custody of Hope, Christian Existence in the Resurrection of the Dead. Susan, please. It's a real honor and privilege uh, for me to be here uh, this morning in such august company. And I'm very, very grateful to Phil and to Kate for the invitation. And I must say, it's uh, rather remarkable to me to stand here on the last day of this conference on the finality of the gospel. Uh, after such, um, such a series of truly remarkable papers by the other presenters, for which also I'm very grateful, and by which also I'm a little intimidated. <clears throat> so, um, as others have said, my focus uh, is on a particular text uh, in Bart's immense corpus, and um, I'm not a Bart scholar, so I'm really focusing on this one text, which in this case is the resurrection of the dead, uh, Bart's uh, early, uh, 19, early 1920s lectures in Göttingen on um, First Corinthians published in 1924. So, to begin. Almost four decades ago, I had the privilege of hearing Bishop Desmond Tutu preach in New York City in a small worship service at the Episcopal Church Center where I was working at the time. Tutu looked out at the congregation of about 15 jaded New Yorkers, of whom I was one, and uh, he said, why do we go around with downcast faces, chappies? We have the resurrection. The year was 1980. Apartheid was still in place in South Africa, and Tutu was in the forefront of the struggle for the humanity of all people in South Africa, oppressors as well as oppressed. Humanly speaking, there was very little reason for hope. But Tutu was not interested in what was possible, humanly speaking. We have the resurrection, chappies. Tutu's resurrection proclamation was a vision of life under the custody of hope in at least three ways. First, Tutu spoke in sure confidence that the resurrection means that God's victory over sin and death, albeit hidden in the present, is nonetheless the only final reality of history. Hope is the presence of this reality, which is nothing less than the presence of the living God. Second, the resurrection of the dead means that the reality of God in history is God pro nobis, containing the promise that all humanity ultimately will share in the life of the risen Lord. And third, far from resulting in quietism or passivity, this resurrection hope catalyzes a robust human agency, the agency so evident in Tutu's own struggle against apartheid. When humanly speaking, the only predictable future was a bloodbath, Tutu saw another reality grounded in the promise of resurrection, which allowed him to hope and work for reconciliation. My topic today is hope. My text, as I've said, is Barth's early 1922, published in 1924, Göttingen Lectures on 1 Corinthians, uh, which are is titled The Resurrection of the Dead. Just as the power of Tutu's words resulted in part from the context in which he spoke, so Bart's context also matters. He lectured on 1 Corinthians in the context of his own disillusionment with bourgeois Christianity. Educated, as we know, in liberal Protestant theology, Bart later recalled the disenchantment he experienced at the beginning of World War I when he read, quote, 
the horrible manifesto of the 93 German intellectuals who identified themselves before all the world with the war policy of Kaiser Wilhelm II. Among the signatories, I discovered the names of almost all my German teachers, close quote. Bart saw that the teachings on which he had cut his theological teeth were powerless against the drums of war. In The Resurrection of the Dead, he speaks scathingly about liberal Christianity as a beautiful shell around an empty center, around the secret belief that Jesus died but did not rise, and that the claims of Christian faith are really a sham. Quote, life goes on its way, time hurries, history is endless, as if no Jesus had been. Worse yet, clergy, quote, cannot meet without significantly smiling at each other in the consciousness of the fatal secret of the utter insignificance of their activity, close quote. I have been in clergy meetings where I know exactly what he was talking about, yes. So it is remarkable that Bart did not end in cynical rejection of Christian faith. Rather, in the face of human impossibility, he was grasped by the impossible possibility, the reality of the gospel, that is to say, the reality of Jesus Christ. Just a little story. Uh, my colleague, Stanley Harwas, used to frequently say, uh, quote John Wesley, who would say, when uh, talking about some Christian leader, well, yes, but is he happy? Stanley would always say, is he happy? <clears throat> so one day I walked into Stanley's office and I said, Stanley, you know how I know Bart is right? He said, no, how do you know? And I said, because when I read him, I get happy. <laughs> and then Stanley laughed and he said, well, he was a happy guy. <laughs> and then he went on and he said, but how did he have faith? It's a blankety-blank, I cannot quote him exactly, but you will fill in the words, miracle. <laughs> and I said, Stanley, all faith is a blankety-blank miracle. <laughs> Grasped by this miracle, Bart lectured on 1 Corinthians, and in his work on the epistle, he discovered, he put this it, this way himself, he discovered that the 15th chapter on the resurrection is the key to the entire letter. Here already the end is the beginning and the beginning is the end. This is not a mechanistic model, but rather the dynamic reality and presence of Jesus Christ as the living Lord, who is thus both the wince and the wither of the Corinthians' life in Christ. That is the reality of hope, and to live in this reality is to live in the custody of hope. But what does this look like? In order to explore hope as the shape of the Christian life, this morning I will make a double move. I will look at some key themes in Bart's exposition of hope, but I will also bring in, on occasion, the voice of another roughly contemporaneous thinker who also deepened in hope in the face of disillusionment with bourgeois Christianity, and that is the English poet T.S. Eliot. Now, this may seem to be a surprising move to juxtapose the Anglo-Catholic Eliot with Bart. But when one reads Eliot's The Four Quartets alongside Bart, there are surprising resonances. Moreover, Eliot knew and appreciated Bart's work. Reviews of Bart appeared in Eliot's own literary journal, Criterion. And both Bart and Eliot contributed essays to an edited volume on the topic of Revelation, edited by John Bailey, published in 1937. And in a 1939 lecture on types of English religious poetry, Eliot predicted that religious poetry in the future would be concerned with rigorous accounts of human sin and divine transcendence, that is, with, quote, giving poetic form to theological thought, close quote. And he named two thinkers as sources for such thought, Karl Barth and Kierkegaard. Perhaps Eliot found Barth bracing because Eliot also rejected the liberal Christianity of his time. As early as 1916, prior to his own conversion, Eliot wrote, certain saints found the following of Christ very hard, but modern methods have facilitated everything. 
Yet I am not sure after reading modern theology that the pale Galilean has conquered. That was before he read Bart. In 1930, he wrote, one of the consequences, it seems to me, of our failure to grasp the proper relation of the eternal and the transient is our overestimation of the importance of our own time. This is natural to an age in which whatever its professions is still imbued with the doctrine of progress. No age has been more egocentric, so to speak, than our own. That was after he'd read Bart. Enacting his own prediction about English religious poetry, uh, Eliot wrote the four quartets, completing the last three movements during World War II. So I will introduce parts, excerpts from that poem as illuminating articulations of some key things in the resurrection of the dead, just to bring in another voice. So, on to Bart's reading of 1 Corinthians. Bart gives us a striking clue to the direction of his argument in the quotation from Calvin's Institutes that he places at the beginning of the resurrection of the dead. My title today indeed comes from that quotation, which reads as follows. Though Christ offers us in the gospel a present plenitude of spiritual blessings, yet the enjoyment of them always lies hid under the custody of hope till we are divested of our corruptible body and transfigured into the glory of him who is our first fruits, our forerunner. In the meantime, the spirit commands us to rely on the promises, nor indeed have we otherwise any enjoyment of Christ any further than we embrace him as he is garbed in his promises, by which it comes to pass that he himself now dwells in our hearts and yet we live like pilgrims at a distance from him because we walk by faith and not by sight. Bart himself italicized the last sentence. He himself now dwells in our hearts and yet we live like pilgrims at a distance from him. If we take this as a guide to Bart's commentary, we will focus on the motifs of hope, promise, and hiddenness in a paradoxical dialectic of absence and presence and of time and eternity. As Bart understands Paul's letter, this paradoxical hope is bound up and revealed in the resurrection, which not only brings 1 Corinthians to a triumphant climax, but also, in Bart's view, animates Paul's argument throughout the letter. The resurrection is, quote, the point from which Paul is speaking and to which he points in chapter 15. Close quote. Exegetes might well notice that the linear structure of 1 Corinthians begins with the cross and ends with the resurrection. Indeed, many would say that the first two chapters are key to the letter. Bart, however, devotes, devotes surprisingly little time to Paul's opening emphasis on the cross. His primary focus is on the theme, quote, from God, apotutheu, which he sees in chapters 1 through 4 as the secret nerve of this whole and perhaps not only this, section. His summary of these chapters is telling. They concern, quote, the either or, the understanding or the failure to understand the three words apotutheu, from God. Unless everything deceives, that is the direction, rictung, of Paul's utterance. Are not position and counterposition in the conflict about the resurrection, which 1 Corinthians 15 will disclose, already visible here in outline. Thus, in Bart's view, the vantage point from which Paul sees even the cross and certainly every aspect of the Corinthians' muddled communal life is the resurrection, which grounds the letter's ethical exhortations in the present reality of the risen Lord and in the promised resurrection of the body. Indeed, it is not only Jesus' resurrection, but the promised resurrection of all humanity, which brings the resurrection of Jesus home to Paul's human addressees, who also include us. Therefore, quote, from this standpoint, not only the death of those now living, but above all, their life, this side of the threshold of death, is in the apostolic sermon, veritably seen, understood, judged, and placed in the light of the last severity, the last hope. The last severity, the last hope. We are not accustomed th to think of hope as severity, the German is ernstus, but for Paul it is just that. 
As we shall see, resurrection hope is severe, earnest, serious, because it requires a divestment of all penultimate hopes and attachments. It announces not the fulfillment, but the end of everything constitutive of human flourishing and achievement in present history. I will come back to this divestment later, illustrating its luminous expression in Eliot's Four Quartets. There, as in Bart, hope includes both a necessary disillusionment and a final affirmation that, in Eliot's quotation from Julian, all will be well. To focus my discussion in what follows, I will offer some reflections on three related aspects of the custody of hope. First, the inalienable bond between Christ's resurrection and the general resurrection. Second, the double revelation of death and life, finitude and eternity, which is effected by the resurrection of the dead. And third, the anthropological correlate of this double revelation and a kind of double participation in which human agency is constituted. So first, the inalienable connection between Christ's resurrection and ours. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, Paul solemnly announces the reality of the resurrection of Jesus as the constitutive foundation of the church. In the following section, verses 12 through 19, he makes a circular argument for the resurrection of the dead as follows. This is Paul at his best, you know. Now, if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. For if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Noting the circularity of Paul's argument, Bart goes straight to the theologic that undergirds the apostles' thought, so, foundation, so foundational as not to be named explicitly, the union between Christ and humanity. It is a failure to reckon with this union and in it the dynamic reality of God as the only basis of their common life that lies at the heart of the Corinthians' missteps. In this way, they are ignorant of God. Rejecting the notion of the general resurrection, their nominal belief in Christ's resurrection has, quote, no vital significance for them, close quote. It is someone else's news, not their news. It is an optional belief, a hypothetical claim, not the wellspring of their life in Christ. And behind their indifference lies a deeper problem. The Corinthians fail to recognize that the resurrection is the revelation of God as God's being pro nobis. In a passage worth quoting at length, Bart asserts concerning these verses, verses 12 through 19, if the end of history set by God is here, if the new eternal beginning placed by God appears here, then that which has appeared from God applies to the whole of history within the scope of this horizon. Then the miracle of God to Christ is immediately and simultaneously the miracle of God to us and not a miracle about which it may at any rate still be said, what has it to do with us? If we see God at work here, at work there, excuse me, if we see God at work there, then what is true there is also serious, Ernst, for us here and now. Then our life too, it goes without saying, is placed in the light which proceeds from that horizon of all that we call life, close quote. Note the temporal language, which is essential to the understanding of union between Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of all humanity. The miracle of God to Christ is immediately and simultaneously the miracle of God to us. Simultaneity, the collapsing of all time into God's eternal present, the moment that John Barclay talked about in, the, in his, his talk, is implicit in the claim that Christ's death and resurrection have immediate effects for all people in all times and places. But then, Bart adds crucially, not yet in fulfillment. It is the not yet which separates us 
from the resurrection, close quote. And here Bart seems to speak rather differently than in his exposition of Romans 13 that we heard about. Here there is a definite not yet. For life in both the simultaneity and the not yet, hope is the only possible modus operandi. The reality of the resurrection, which means in practice the reality of God's present dynamic risen Christ, means, quote, we are living in time for eternity. We are living in the hope of the resurrection. This is Bart's riff on Calvin's emphasis on living by the promises and the custody of hope. Thus, both time and union with Christ exist in dialectical tension between time and eternity, between presence and absence. Christ is the point at which eternity and time intersect, and thus the point where the humanly unbridgeable gap between God and creatures is bridged. In 15, 1 through 11, Christ's resurrection as, quote, the substance of the preaching of Christ, close quote, displays, quote, the act of God on the verge of history, which opens a new eternal history, the crucified as the Lord of death and life, close quote. The point of this present lordship of Christ is precisely this, that the reality of God is the reality of all human history, including our own, even as it also marks the end of that history. At the same time, here, Bart does not simply collapse all time into the present moment. If he did, there would be no room for hope, nor would there be any need for it. Rather, he repeatedly emphasizes here the not yet of present human experience over against the mistaken complacence of the Corinthians. The resurrection does not mean endless time, a never-ending continuation of present realities, but rather the end of time. If this were not the case, if time continued ad infinitum, or if all time were collapsed into the present so that there was nothing still in the future for human experience, which practically speaking would be the same thing, the result would be despair whether or not the Corinthians recognized their own situation as hopeless. Now, T.S. Eliot was also famously gripped by the moment in which eternity intersects time and the human impossibility of seeing and grasping that moment living as we do in time. So again, from the four quartets, here he speaks. Men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension. But to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint, but no occupation either, but something given and taken in a lifetime's death in love, ardor, and selflessness, and self-surrender. The hint half-guessed, the gift half-understood, is incarnation. So for Eliot, the point of intersection between time and eternity is the incarnation. Bart's focus, at least in the resurrection of the dead, is on the point of resurrection. But of course, the two cannot be separated because the resurrection means the presence of the Lord. And while Bart might well quibble with the notion of any saints grasping the intersection of time and eternity, he would agree with Eliot's, I think, Eliot's immediate correction. It is all a matter of gift given and half understood, if even that. Closely linked with the dialectic of time and eternity is the dialectic of absence and presence. Here, as often, the temporal and the spatial go together. Implicit in and undergirding Bart's references to time and eternity is the stress on the connection between Christ and humanity. God is wholly other, God is God and we are not, something the Corinthians seem not to have grasped fully. And yet we participate in Christ's destiny of life, just as we participate in his death. Such participation is always sourced and sustained by Christ coming to us, which in turn brings our own being to us. We can see this in the way in which Bart speaks of the new creation that believers both are in Christ and yet await. Quote, it, that is this new being, becomes our truth not by the hopeless task of going to heaven, but by its coming to us from heaven, as always the line of movement from God to us. Such divine action fuels present hope. Bart continues, here we can only believe, not see, but we can believe him. He is our hope. 
because he is from above. Indeed, quote, between us and Christ, there exists no continuity, only the relationship of hope, but the relationship of hope exists, close quote. Ultimately, the hope of victory over death. In the present, this hope is and remains God's, quote, God's gift through our Lord Jesus Christ present in hope, close quote. Thus, for the present, the church offers hopeful thanksgiving, spoken with empty hands, yet sourced from beyond itself, by the risen Christ. In his helpful study, The Resurrection in Karl Barth, Dale Dawson sums up the effects of what he calls this inalienable relatedness between Christ and humanity. Quote, in his self-revelation, the crucified yet risen Lord has drawn near to us, revealing in himself our true selves. Included in his self-revelation is his inalienable relatedness to us, into which we are caught up and by which we are transformed. The subjective side of this reconciliation is already accomplished and guaranteed in its objective achievement, its noetic aspect rooted and upheld by its ontic aspect. Or better, both are held together in the one eternal existence of the risen Jesus Christ." Close quote. The motifs of revelation and human transformation that Dawson highlights are the subjects of the rest of my talk as they are essential outworkings of the hope that is the modus operandi of Christian existence. Such hope is not straightforwardly positive or affirmative. It is deconstructive. For in Barth's reading of 1 Corinthians, resurrection fosters paradoxical hope through a double-edged revelation. On the one hand, the revelation of death and all that death signifies in terms of finitude and finality. On the other hand, the revelation of life. This double revelation in turn discloses a paradoxical double participation that is the anthropological correlate of the resurrection of the dead. So first, the double revelation of death and life, the revelation of death. In the introduction to chapter 15, Bart states that the chapter concerns Paul's proclamation of the last things. It is in this sense that resurrection is the revelation of death. One might think that death of all things needs no revelation. Its reality stares us in the face all the time. What could be more obvious than death? What could blind us to our own finitude? A great deal, as it turns out. Bart thus titles his overview of 1 Corinthians 1 through 14 as, quote, the line of sight, the German is die Blichrichtung, because the chapters all point towards the resurrection and draw on it for analysis of the single problem in Corinth, to wit, the Corinthian church's presumed self-sufficiency and abundance of blessings. They are, quote, in process of becoming a Christian world. They are going on far too well. Christianity was flourishing in Corinth in a disquieting fashion. Paul sees in these conditions man rearing himself up. Christian man, but man nevertheless, I rather like that gendered translation in that instance, rearing himself against God. In Webster's summary of the problem, the Corinthians quote, religious vitality threatens to eclipse the sheer spontaneity of divine grace. Close quote. They may say that Christ rose from the dead, but they don't believe there will be a general resurrection, nor are they interested. It is simply irrelevant to their teeming church life and experience. They have forgotten that everything they have and are is apotuthu from God. Thinking they can choose what to believe and what to reject, they have sidelined belief in a bodily resurrection for all humanity. Bart ascribes this rejection, sidelining, to their, quote, contempt for visible reality and a manner of ascribing to the divine only the sphere of the invisible, close quote. And this is rather intriguing, not least because Bart repeatedly in emphasizes the hiddenness of hope. But I think for Bart here, what is visible, as elsewhere, is death. And the Corinthians are in denial about that visible reality. Worst of all, they are oblivious to the despair inherent in their stance. They are puffed up with arrogant religious knowledge, although in fact they are under the shadow of death. They are living in the illusion of self-sufficiency and individualistic pretense, in short, in, quote, 
ecclesiastical Christianity, close quote. In Bart's words, these good people were not in the least aware of their antagonism to Paul, close quote. They thought they were deeply spiritual, not realizing that without the resurrection, they were still in the grip of sin. It is not difficult to find contemporary illustrations, but just one that has really struck me recently. In response to the repeated school shootings occurring in this country, one of the things that public officials say frequently is, this is not who we are. You've heard this. This is not who we are. It's a grasping at hope and a distancing from darkness and despair, but is it real hope or is it whistling in the dark? Imagine Bart's response. Nine, this is who we are. These vain affirmations of human possibility and human innocence have no place. They're manifestations of despair. Again, similarly, Eliot writes cynically of, quote, the gifts reserved for age, close quote. That is the gifts of recognizing in our old age at least to a limited degree, the ways in which we have been deluded into a false sense of our own innocence. Among these gifts is, quoting, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been, the shame of motives late revealed, and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue. Close quote. For Bart, the resurrection of the dead sets a question mark against all such pretension and despair, and thus clears space for genuine hope. In his analysis of 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter treats not of eschatology as if it concerned the final stage within the flow of time, quote, death, the beyond, and world perfection. Rather, quote, we have to do here with the doctrine of the end, which is at the same time the beginning of the last things which are at the same time the first the chapter treats of death and the dead in sharp contrast with the abundance of the possibilities of life, which was the theme of chapter 14. All those things which the Corinthians were previously bidden to lay to heart suddenly appear here in the pale, in the pale light of the fact that they must die." Close quote. The effect of this revelation is, of course, to put an end to reliance on anything other than God. It is recalling Webster's words to rely only on, to fail to rely only on, quote, the sheer spontaneity of grace, close quote. And in this, in turn, means an end to the hidden despair of thinking that we have arrived. In his commentary on 15, 45 through 48, Bart returns to this theme. The passage reads, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual which is first, pneumaticon, pneumaticon, but the psuchikon, and then the pneumaticon. I can't talk, sorry. For Bart, the sequence from first Adam to last is important. The sequence is important because we have to understand ourselves as the first Adam, the earthy, lest we think that, quote, the unsubstantial thing, which we are now and which we have, is already the life of the new man, so that we should already have our reward there. Over against this, Bart sees the resurrection as setting a definite limit on time, and thereby opening up room for hope through the divestment of false hopes. And here again, Eliot catches the sense and the feeling of this via negativa. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love. For love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. Eliot later repeats and clarifies. You say I am repeating something I have said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, 
you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own. And where you are is where you are not. Eliot is clearing the space for impossible new life, externally sourced. And here is Bart. What can touch us when we are not, when we do not know, when we cannot have? With the word resurrection, however, the apostolic preaching puts in this empty place against all that exists for us, all that is known to us, all that can be possessed by us, all things of all time, what? Not the non-being, the unknown, the not to be possessed, not yet a second being, a further thing to become known, a higher future possession, but the source and truth of all that exists, that is known, that can belong to us, the reality of all res, of all things, the eternity of time, the resurrection of the dead. All this exactly in that empty place where death seems to be the last word. Thus, behind this revelation of death, indeed, the point of the revelation is life, to which I turn. Bart says, the recollection of death is so important, so urgent, so disturbing, so actual, because it is, in fact, really the tidings of the resurrection behind it, the recollection of the life, of our life that we are not living, that yet is our life. Sounds a little bit like Eliot there. This life we are not living, that yet is our life, is the life of eternity extending into the present. I will talk more about this in relationship to the constitution of human agents. But first, I want to note briefly the content of this life revealed by the resurrection. It is Jesus Christ, specifically the life of Jesus Christ, towards us and for us. Quote, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Bart comments, behind the impenetrable walls of impenetrable reality, in front of which we stand, and whose unmistakable sign is death, stands and awaits the new real life, which has appeared in Christ, but is the very life of all of us, close quote. This life was a relationally mediated gift, always bound up with the giver who is God. Dawson sums this up beautifully. The resurrection is the event, the way, and the power of the turning of Jesus Christ and all that he had accomplished for us to us. Bart took the resurrection to be the transition of Jesus Christ in Novus. The doctrine of the resurrection for Bart has to do with the movement of Jesus Christ in the fullness of his reconciling, reconciling work from the Christological sphere to the sphere of other human beings. In other words, life is inseparable from the giver, or precisely the gift of the one who conquered death. Bart sees this early in the letter when he glosses 3.1, which says, quote, for other foundation can no one lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, as, quote, God always remains the subject in the relationship created by this testimony. Unlike the revelation of death, however, the revelation of life remains hidden. Despite the new life in Christ already accomplished by God, for us it remains, quote, in the category of the not yet. It is future and therefore invisible in line with Colossians 3.3. 3. You have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. That future hope, in turn, leads to one more observation about the revelation of life through the second Adam, and that is its incompleteness in the present time. Quote, as the resurrection is obviously not yet here, the kingdom of God is not yet finished, not even in what the Christian church has and is in its faith. The meaning of the kingdom of Christ, and therefore also the meaning of the Christian faith, is never exhausted in that which is present and given. It is rather in its essence a hope and expectation of what at all times is only coming, only promised, the kingdom of God, close quote. This reservation keeps hope from being a kind of triumphalism, a secure prediction of the future. Hope is not smug predictions of the future. It is present resting in the Lord of all time. 
Third, then, the resurrection reveals and enacts who we are, which turns out to be, in the present, constituted through a kind of double participation that is the anthropological correlate of the revelation of death and life. It's helpful at this point to recall Dawson's summary of Barth's main argument, quote, in his self-revelation, the crucified yet risen Lord has drawn near to us, revealing in himself our true selves. Included in his self-revelation is his inalienable relatedness to us, into which we are caught up and by which we are transformed. This inalienable, inalienable <laughs> relatedness is key to the moral anthropology that Bart sees at work throughout 1 Corinthians, and it shows up in unexpected places. For example, in 1534, Paul suddenly sharply exhorts the Corinthians, come to your right mind, come to your senses, and sin no more, he exclaims. In his commentary, Bart makes a surprising move here. He says the Corinthians must realize the relativity of their Christian religion. Odd phrase. And he explains, this is in the translation, relativity means relationship. The object of relationship is God, who speaks his decisive word in the resurrection of the dead. In the German, the phrase relativity means relationship is Relativität heißt Beziehung. There's a case where it helps to look at the German a lot in relationship to this um, particular book. This word, Relativität, has the sense of relatedness, as Beziehung makes clear, but also condition as the translation relativity tries to indicate. That Bart intends both meanings of the word is evident in his next sentence. Upon the existence or non-existence of this relationship hinges or hangs the question of whether your Christianity is full of real meaning or is utter nonsense. Having failed to grasp this reality, the Corinthians are faced with a serious decision, soap bubbles or reality. It really is that. Seifenblasen oder wirklichkeit. Bart's point is straightforward. God-relatedness is the condition of all Christian existence, including theology and practice. Christianity is either a la-la land, a pretense, blowing bubbles in some eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, or it is an ongoing relationship with the living Lord. That does not mean, however, that it is the only kind of relatedness there is, at least in the present. Bart's stern words concerning the Corinthians suggest otherwise. Rather, human beings are paradoxically constituted in a kind of double relatedness, what I have called elsewhere double participation in regard to Bart, uh, Paul, get that mixed up, Paul's anthropology. And I was uh, interested to find in a um, book by Nathan Hitchcock on the resurrection of the flesh, the same term. Hitchcock says, in rather Athanasian language, Bart describes a double participation. A human participates in the human nature, but is also born anew, becoming a participant in the divine nature. The ego in Revelation is a double subject. It must affirm itself in flesh and itself in God. To me, be more precise, at least in Bart's interpretation of 1 Corinthians 15, we are simultaneously participating in death and in life. We are at once dead and alive. Where have we heard that before? John Barclay discovered this in Romans, but Bart discovered it in 1 Corinthians in the early 1920s. In Bart's words, quote, the dead, that is what we are. The risen, that is what we are not. But precisely for this reason, the resurrection of the, of the dead involves that that which we are not is equivalent to that which we are, close quote. In other words, the risen, reconstituted new creature is equivalent to what we are not yet, and yet is what we truly are. And the seal of this promise is the resurrection of the dead. Our life is visible, our death is visible, our life in Christ is hidden, but nonetheless real. In fact, the most real thing about us, because it is what belongs to eternity. The duality of death and life is penultimate, but at the last, only life as uh, Christophe Chalamet put so beautifully. Implicit in this whole way of talking is an unstated but axiomatic theological eschatological anthropology in which, as Webster puts it, our future is already extending into our present. 
we have an eschatological identity that pulls us into the future and in turn shapes our moral agency in the present. Put somewhat differently, again drawing on Webster, Bart is engaged in, quote, a struggle to describe what moral nature and activity look like in an eschatological projection, close quote. That is, our agency is continually and finally being reshaped, reconstituted in relationship to the Lord of the future in the kingdom of Christ, which is the kingdom of hope. Even as we continue in this life to struggle with sin as a power and our visible life stands under the shadow of death. What does this moral nature and activity look like? I will give one example from Bart's treatment of key texts earlier in 1 Corinthians, and that is from chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. In chapter 8, Paul takes up the matter of whether believers should eat meat that has been sacrificed in pagan temples before being sold in the market. He begins with the proper relationship between love and knowledge. Quote, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. If anyone imagines that she knows something, she does not yet know as she ought to know. But if anyone loves God, such a one is known by God, close quote. Paul then develops the distinction between arrogant and indeed destructive kinds of knowledge on the one hand, and the kind of practical discernment that arises out of love for one's neighbor on the other. He describes, that is, the development of an interpersonally attuned moral agency. Bart recognizes this very well, but crucially, he finds its genesis in the love of God, operative for and in and through human agents. As I think that's a right reading of Paul. His argument is a con Bart's argument is a conscious corrective to individualistic Cartesian notions of the self as a freestanding, self-actualizing agent. Where the love of God is, with God as the subject of that love and knowledge, quote, God enters as the positive element, the truth in knowledge, close quote who overturns all human pretensions. It is not correct to say, I think, therefore I am, cogito ergo sum, but rather, as Bart puts it, cogitor ergo sum. I am thought of, therefore I am. And this cogitari, this being thought of, its logic, consistency, and certitude will prevail. The interpersonally known love of God, therefore, becomes the cradle of thought thereby constituting the human moral agent as one who rightly sees her neighbor from the, stand, quote, from the standpoint of love, or what is the same thing from the standpoint of the knowledge of God in which God is the subject, close quote. This is the reconstitution of humanity that is promised by the resurrection and at least foreshadowed here. This is, quote, the creaturely coordinate of the Apotuthu in which God's knowledge and love, which are two sides of the same coin, generate human knowledge arising out of love. God is the acting subject through whom the human is also an acting subject. I don't have time, but I was going to give an example of this in Bart's reading of 1 Corinthians 13 as well, in which the love of God is distinct from the human agent, and yet Bart makes humans the subject of predicates. No. Paul makes humans the subject of predicates. Let me get that right. <laughs> Bart comments on that. This vignette gives us a picture of what transformed agency generated out of union with Christ looks like. It is imperfect, limited, and flawed, and for this reason, it exists in hope. But it is also surely sourced and sustained by the faithfulness of the risen Christ. And for this reason also, it exists in hope. Quote, once the reality of the resurrection and in it the reality of God is recognized, human beings can and may tread the ever so infinitely narrow path, the knife edge of Christianity, close quote. So in conclusion, throughout Bart's analysis of 1 Corinthians, hope arises out of the unbreakable link between Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of the dead, which reveals death and life and which enacts the reconstitution of human agency in Christ. Such reconstitution of human agents is penultimate, but nonetheless real, because in a kind of double participation in death and life, human beings are both the dead and the living. To live in this double reality is to live in the custody of hope, which is not a what, but a who. A who. 
the custody of hope is not a what, but a who. As, as Webster puts it here too in the matter of hope, we are enclosed by Jesus Christ, the one word of God which cannot be transcended. Or recalling Calvin, to be enclosed by Jesus Christ as the one word is to live in the custody of hope. In conclusion then finally, T.S. Eliot introduced the four quartets with two lines from the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus, who portrayed life as an ever-changing flux, a continuous fire that consumes all things. He ends the four quartets famously with lines from Julian of Norwich, the revelations of Julian of Norwich, uh, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Well, yes. But to my way of thinking, Eliot doesn't quite get there to the unambiguous confidence and joy at the end in Bart's affirmation of the resurrection. It doesn't quite express it. And so I turn to another poet, uh, also a Christian poet, interestingly a Jesuit, to express that vital hope. A poet who also began with Heraclitus and ended robustly with the resurrection, and that is Gerard Manley Hopkins, who had his own suffering and despair to contend with. And the poem is that nature is a Heracletian fire and of the comfort of the resurrection. It's a long poem. There's a good bit about that Heracletian fire in it, and I won't read all of that, but here's the ending, which is also my ending. Manshape that shone sheer off disseveral, a star. Death blots black out, nor mark is any of him at all so stark, but vastness blurs and time beats level. Enough, the resurrection, a heart's clarion, away grief's gasping, joyless days, dejection. Across my foundering deck shone a beacon, an eternal beam. Flesh fade and mortal trash fall to the residuary worm. World's wildfire leave but ash. In a flash at a trumpet crash, I am all at once what Christ is, since he was what I am. And this jack joke, poor potsherd, patch matchwood, immortal diamond is immortal diamond. Thank you. <laughs>